Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario has been in step three of the roadmap to reopen plans since July, and it appears the province will be moving on fairly soon. We're still waiting for the details of what to expect. Well, we'll get into that discussion. Last week, we spoke to long-term care minister Rod Phillips about their investment plan to hire 4,000 long-term care staff in a year. Laura Bomer, who is the chair of the Canadian Association of Continuing Care Providers, will join us, and she's going to discuss her op-ed piece about why that announcement is misguided. And the newest poll that asked Hamiltonians about expanding the urban boundary is getting some pushback. We discussed the latest with Michael Collins-Williams, who is the chief executive officer of the West End Home Builders Association. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We mentioned about the Ontario situation, and again, uh, there's a lot of concern about what's happening here, and we... we Talked about that on the program last week, as you recall. It was Friday afternoon before a long weekend, which is usually uh, when governments want to release something that they know they're going to get some pushback on because there's nobody going to be around for the long weekend, right? Uh, and that's what they did. And I mean, the good news was they eased restrictions on things like stadiums and movie theaters, uh, and that was great for well, going to the Tiger Cat game on, on Thanksgiving. Uh, Apparently the theaters have been packed all over the place now because of the new Bond movie, so that's great for the theater owners. But they left a lot of places out, including restaurants, bars, and things of this nature, and uh, there's some concern about exactly what's going to be happening. So we're getting some word now that uh, Queen's Park may be ready uh, at any time now uh, to make some announcements about uh, easing of restrictions and, and some other aspects of what's going to be happening in this next phase. Uh, Sabrina Nanji, who is the founder of Queen's Park Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Sabrina, I hope you had a great long weekend. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show today. Morning, Bill. What are you hearing at Queen's Park? Are, are, are they going to lift some of the restrictions here? Are they going to be a little more, I hate to say, liberal-minded uh, from a foreign government, I mean, about, about some of the comings and goings that we can do? Um, yeah, it seems to be a week of weeks so far at, at Queen's Park. There's a lot of chatter about what might be coming down the pike. Um, nothing confirmed yet, but uh, I am confer- I have confirmed, you know, uh, from some sources, uh, some of what uh, our colleagues have been reporting at, at the CDC. They were first to get the scoop that uh, we're going to hear the next steps of, you know, reopening beyond step three, which Ontario has been in for quite some time. It's kind of been the status quo for now. So we're going to see more benchmarks about um, lifting capacity limits, you know, in restaurants and bars and gyms, uh, which was a little bit of a, a disaster uh, issue for the province this week as well, because restaurants were very upset uh, when they were left out of the capacity uh, cap, capacity caps being lifted uh, on Friday, as you mentioned, that was a, a bit of a news dump. Uh, on the Friday before the long weekend. So lots of um, speculation about what could come down the line. Um, We're expecting to hear from Ford potentially tomorrow, the premier. So I'm sure there'll be lots of questions um, and hopefully some answers from him then. Yeah, the pushback. Well, you've been around Queen's Park often enough to know that you know anytime you hear that they're going to make an announcement at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, it's 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 not going to be great news for somebody, which is why they usually duck out. You know, by the time you guys want to start making some phone calls, of course, all you hear is crickets because they're all gone for the long weekend. Uh, but it was pretty loud and clear. Rocco Rossi for the Ontario Chamber was on uh, the, our station yesterday talking about this and saying he got a lot of pushback from some of his members, especially in the restaurant and bar industry, about this too. So is the anticipation now that they're going to go? back to full capacity well keep in mind that restaurants they don't have um actual they technically don't have hard limits on on capacity right now so it's not a you know a a number of people necessarily but they have to keep two meters of distance between Mm -hmm. their tables and so for a lot of them that is kind of reducing their it's just having the effect of reducing their capacity some of them even by half and so the restaurant industry was was up in arms this week um 
because they they haven't been given a, you know a, an explanation or a reason why you know from the government with, with data to back it up that, that they were left out of this decision um, when theaters uh, sports arenas uh, concert venues that they they can go back to 100 percent full capacity so uh, I, I have actually spoken with some uh, conservative government officials here who have kind of acknowledged uh, you know that maybe that was a bit of a mistake not to not to announce the plan all at once uh, or and you know of course hindsight is, is 2020 there but I think uh, you know there, there might be some good news I, I don't know details on, on when they'll be able to uh, you know have uh, uh, less less space between the tables you know so the capacity rules will be different uh, the timing of it I'm really not sure uh, when it will come down obviously uh, the, the details on the benchmarks we are being told that there are benchmarks coming what they are we don't know yet so Again, lots of lots of unanswered questions, um, and I think that a, a bit of a bit of uh, damage control for the Ford government as well this week. I, I know that one of the spokespeople here, uh, and of course they all want to remain anonymous at this stage uh, because they don't have the authority to actually make public statements. Uh, but the, uh, the the gist of the quote here was the Ontario government will not lift all public health measures and pretend the pandemic is over, which seems like kind of a backhanded slap at Jason Kenney with what he did in Alberta back in July, I suppose. Uh, but the other thing, as you've been reporting, though, Sabrina, is the main criticism about the Ford government uh, is not that they've been flagrantly saying, well, hey, the pandemic's over. It's that they've been too cautious in moving forward about this. You know, they're going in half measures. And, and you know, when you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. So I, I guess it's about time for them to do a bit of a rewind here, decide, decide just what they're going to do going forward. Yeah, and, you know, behind the scenes, I think it is a little more of a blatant, um, backhanded uh, comment about, about J.C. Kenney that, you know, p- people behind the scenes are saying that they have uh, looked to other provinces and learned lessons, you know, maybe not naming names that, uh, as much. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think we're all, we're all thinking and, and looking to Alberta and, um, you know, not wanting to have to go, go backwards like that. Um, I think, you know, we are going to see masks in place uh, indoors as well for, for a long time going forward. Um, I think that, uh, you know, uh, to, to have uh, uh, more benchmarks and, you know, clarity around this, it, it will really just, um, I think, make the lives easier for businesses, for people, um, you know, the community, but also I think even politically speaking for the Ford government as well. They've been getting a lot of blowback even from the opposition parties, Um you know, for for not having much clarity on this, uh, for having to announce policies piecemeal, um, I think that you know this this rollout could have been a lot smoother. And so, when the Ford government says they've learned some lessons, I think uh, maybe on the public health side, but politically speaking, when it comes to releasing this stuff, it seems like uh, they they tend to leak some information. Uh, it's sort of floated as a, a trial balloon in the public, and then they will make the adjustments. And, and announce the policy days later. Um, I, I don't know if uh, how long that's going to keep working for them. Well, and I guess they've got some numbers on their side anyway, because I know that one of the rationale that they used uh, when we asked about that uh, back around September uh, was, you know, well, you know, we're concerned because some of the experts are saying that, you know, there could be a spike because the kids are going back to school. That hasn't really materialized yet anyway, and we're, you know, heading towards the second month of schooling now. Uh, so I guess they've got some confidence right now that they can move forward on this, but uh, cautiously, I guess. I think they, it's like uh, the little kid that still wants to hang on to the edge of the pool when they go into the water, and I guess that's a, the mindset they're going to take. We'll, as always, be watching for the reporting on this. Uh, Queen's Park Observer is the place to get the information. And uh, Sabrina, as always, thank you for this, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much. 
Take care. Sabrina Nancy, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, uh, where you can get all the information about what's going on in the provincial capital. Uh, and hopefully, as Sabrina mentioned, tomorrow being Friday, the end of the week, uh, there could be some good news for restaurant and bar owners. And uh, certainly they're waiting with eager anticipation for that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had a lot of discussion over the last, uh, I was going to say almost two years now, about long-term care facilities and the impact that the pandemic has had on that. And as we've stated time and time again, and state again this time, uh, a lot of the pressures and a lot of the concerns that are being raised here existed long before the pandemic started. They, this has just really kind of shined a light on and, and made some situations a lot worse than they, they already were, uh, including, of course, uh, employees, the, the level of care that's going on. And uh, we've had a number of experts on the program in the last little while speaking about that. Uh, just a couple of days ago, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, who's been a very strong advocate for change in long-term care facilities, joined us. And uh, she had some criticisms about the government's policies. And we're rushing these workers into these homes while not realizing that they're going to get in there. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to leave in six months to a year because the conditions are terrible, the pay is terrible, and we are not addressing these two main issues that explain the revolving door in this sector. So why are we throwing all of our money into these programs while not addressing the fundamental, you know, underpinnings as to why workers in general leave long-term care? So my, my concern now is that, you know, it's great to have this money, but are we throwing it down the drain by putting, you know, band-aids on bullet holes? Well, when the minister, uh, Minister Phillips, was on our program a week or so ago, I raised the issue with him about retention of workers. And, uh, well, we got a typical political answer kind of dancing around without very much substance to exactly what was going on uh, and suggesting that they were addressing that. Well, the numbers indicate that's not really happening. And if they are trying to address it, they're not doing a very good job. Uh, one of the people who heard the interview was uh, Laura Bulmer. Uh, Laura is the chair of the Canadian Association of Continuing Care Providers, uh, who had some concerns about uh, retention of workers and uh, wrote a, a fabulous essay about this that I hope everybody at Queen's Park is going to be reading if they haven't already. And Laura Bowman joins us here on the program to talk about those very same concerns. Uh, Laura, uh, thank you so much for the time and uh, thanks for your advocacy in, in this very, very important issue. It's, it's the kind of voice that I think we need for the government to, to be hearing these days. We do, and thank you for having me as well. Um, I certainly wish that there were more people that were jumping on board to do this because there aren't very many people that are at the table and certainly not being heard, that's for sure. Well, and, and they've danced around this, and we've talked about some of the government initiatives. And one of the criticisms I've had, and I know that uh, the Dr. Stamatopoulos has had over the last little while, and others like yourself, is that uh, th they don't seem to have their finger on exactly what the problem is here. You know, they say, okay, we're going to do something about staffing. Well, they're going to take four years to do that. And and at, at the risk of sounding mundane, uh, and most of the people that are in long-term care facilities right now, sadly, probably won't be there in four years. Uh, what about the here and now? And, and worker retention and, and staff retention is a huge problem. I know they talked about this program that they announced a few months ago about you know funding for for special training to, to rapid training so to speak uh to get more workers into there but as as you've written in the piece laura is for everyone who goes in the front door there's a couple going out the back door saying i can't do this anymore at least and not just that there's also people that are completely burned out um leaving um whether it be on medical leave or just quitting their jobs because the profession isn't one of choice anymore We've had uh, funds that have been thrown at um, accelerated programs, as you alluded to earlier, which certainly has a lot of people enrolling for these programs, but a lot just don't stay in the program because it's not their calling. Things in healthcare, especially at this level, are things that you have to be somebody who isn't in it for the money, quite honestly. 
And as an educator as well, I think what's important to note is that doing accelerated programs does not produce the same level of healthcare provider as other ones do. Before the pandemic, we had at least 50 different titles for this worker. Now what we have is different levels of what we call unregulated care providers. And that's really scary, again, for the safety of the patients, because when you think about it, if you have somebody coming into a room wearing scrubs, you don't know whether that's the dietitian, the doctor, the nurse, the surgeon or whatever, and that waters it down so that now even what we call a PSW, there's different levels of it. And it's very confusing and very scary. And most importantly, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an issue for the safety of, of clients out there. Well, and there's that element to it, and you talked about, well, let's use that word, the fear factor that, that residents and, and family members, of course, might be feeling about, you know, exactly who are we talking to. But what about the, the, the concern with the staff itself? When you have that sort of designation, uh, and, and and I guess the, the, the debate and the question that in many of the facilities among the workers is, well, who's doing what? Who's who's responsible for this? What about this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I, I sense every time we talk to people that are involved in these facilities, and I'm, I'm sure you hear this all the time too, Laura, they're frustrated. Uh, you know, they want to do more, but you know, there's not enough of them. Uh, they're not sure what they should be doing. Uh, the, the, the pay is terrible. They've got other responsibilities at home that they have to be concerned about. Uh, some of them have to leave one shift and go do another shift someplace else. That's still mm-hmm. happening, although the government said they, they weren't going to uh, allow that to happen anymore. It's still going on. Uh, they're talking around the issue. They're not really hitting, meeting it head on, though. They aren't, and there definitely seems to be a lack of transparency as well. When we speak about Ford making promises for the increase, The fact that the increase, uh, $3 an hour for workers, is temporary, and then it just keeps on getting, um, uh, what do you call it, renewed all the time, that's just an insult, because it's basically saying to the workers out there that are currently in the field, hey, thanks for helping us through this, but, you know, quite honestly, when we're done, you're probably going to go back to regular pay. And something that people don't know, and this again relates to the lack of transparency, is that this temporary pay does not apply to everyone in the PSW field, like those that work in retirement homes or home care workers. So what kind of a message does that send to the workers then? I mean, you know, for, for a government that says they want to try to keep people in this profession, they want to grow the number of people in this profession. Uh, I, I'll give you my observation on this, Laura. I, I don't think they're doing a very good job of making this an attractive offer for people. Oh, they definitely aren't. And what we need is a national association, one that actually looks after unregulated care providers in Canada, like a professional national voice, just like what the Canadian Nurses Association have, one that will focus to advance the profession, you know, with public interest in mind. Um, having that type of organization would promote the profession in a positive way and also impact the recruitment and retention. It would provide like what, what I consider to be like formal leadership, And at a bare minimum, I think what I need to call for is a PSW-specific task force. There are so many different ongoing initiatives at the different levels and branches of government. It's mind-boggling. You know, and if we don't streamline those efforts and put some strategic thoughts into the planning, then this is just going to snowball to, uh, you know, to the levels that I can't even imagine because we're already in a very bad place. But what's making this situation, I think, even more frustrating for everybody involved, Laura, is there is no shortage of information here. It's, it's not as if they have to study this anymore. You know, there was the independent study. The government did their own study. Uh, you know, there was the military study when they were called in to, to try to take over for a, a period of time. Uh, and there are facts, there are, there are recommendations in all of these. Uh, so, the, the, you know, the, the, the template and, and the game plan is right there in front of them, yet they don't seem to want to embrace it. 
so true. And it's really frustrating. And again, as I said, mind-boggling. I do not understand why, like you said, the, the, the data is there. Um, the voices, unfortunately, are, are, clear, are clearly not loud enough. It's not making the media as much as it, as it used to anymore. Um, and, you know, I think one of the big parts here, Bill, and is that, you know, this workforce is made up mainly of women and minority groups. So when you have that originally already marginalized people, um, we know historically that they often don't get listened to. But but somebody has to be listening. You're a voice for this. We had Dr. Stamatopoulos on uh, yeah. and so many others. Dr. Aria has, has been a very strong voice for this as well. Uh, and, and I thought, and I'll go back to the story that I mentioned, it was just you know when this crisis really started to, to, to get the kind of attention it deserved, I had the premier on the show. This is about a year, year and a half or so ago. And, and you probably remember the story. He had just visited his mother-in-law, who was in one of these facilities, and said, we got to do something about this. And I said, you know, I, can we hold you to that? He says, absolutely. It's terrible what's going on there. Uh, but, you know, what you say and, and what you do are often two different things. And the thing that I think a lot of people are getting frustrated about here is is the, the, the government's commitment to doing this, because the people that own a lot of these facilities where a lot of these things are going on are friends of the government. And uh, they seem very, very hesitant to, to enforce the regulations that are already in place. You can talk all you want about instituting new regulations, but if you're not even enforcing the ones you've got, what a hollow promise that is. It is, and it's a waste of throwing money at initiatives that really aren't, uh, you know, looking at what the what the issues are. Just like Dr. Vivian had said earlier, if you're throwing a lot of money at the recruitment of these workers and not looking at the retention of them, then you're missing the boat completely, and that's a waste of tax dollar pay, uh, tax sorry taxpayers' money, without a doubt. And there's a history of it as well. What we can do is just keep on trying to pound the pavement, make sure that uh, our voices are heard. People like Dr. Vivian, you know, are specific to long-term care, me for personal support workers, and just trying to raise awareness of it, and hopefully things will change down the road. One of the things that I know the Prime Minister talked about during the election campaign, uh, and he got some pushback from the Premiers on this, was, as you say, some national standards. And, and I know that the Premiers right off the bat said, whoa, whoa, that's our turf. You don't touch that. This, you know, provincial health care is, is our job, not yours. Uh, just give us the money and let us do what we want with it. Well, if, if that's the formula they're going to follow through, we've got a problem here in Ontario because the, the money that's been allocated, I don't think has been spent judiciously. Uh, there's a lot of holes in the system. Uh, there's, a, as we mentioned, not much in the way of oversight here. I mean, Minister Phillips prided himself that after he took over the portfolio he went and did some inspections on his own I, I told him last week i'm sure you heard that part of the interview i said you probably did more inspections in three days than your <laughs> inspectors did in the whole year and a half before that right. and, and that's just not acceptable it isn't and nor are those political responses that they give where they skirt around the issue which you know sparked me to reach out to your team to see if i could speak as well i just as i said i think that the data is out there we need to put more pressure on politicians to do the right thing to um, make decisions that are sound and based on evidence. I will, I will raise also the fact of Bill 283, which was a bill that was uh, reached royal assent in the spring. And it was something that PSWs in Ontario have been looking for for decades, and that was regulation to get the respect that they need and to be a regulated worker. And uh, it's really unfortunate that the government decided that the level of regulation that they would get would be the lowest level, which is basically a volunteer registry. And, Bill, that doesn't protect the public. I mean, the minute you say volunteer, then it is not a true regulation in the sense that doctors, nurses, dentists are. So these folks are getting slapped around over and over again, um, you know, which just leads to more of them leaving the profession going, why bother? 
you know, we haven't even talked about the fear of the whistleblowing effect. So many times I'm um, approached by people in the media who want to hear the frontline stories. And it is next to impossible to get actual PSWs to speak up for the fear of losing their job. That says a lot as well. Well, it does about the work environment and about the repercussions mm-hmm. about what's happening here. And, and uh, you know, it's 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 not that difficult to connect the dots about what needs to be done here. And, and I think that adds to the frustration. But you know, every time you see these shortcomings, and and you mentioned some of them in the essay that you did, Laura, it, it what it does is I know the government does not want us to talk about private versus public ownership of these facilities. They they don't want to get into that. They go, you know, oh no no, there's really no difference. Well, there is. There's a difference in the compensation. There's a difference in staffing levels there's a difference oftentimes in in the quality of care that those people are receiving and more importantly as we just talked about a second ago there seems to be very little oversight uh, and a lot of the thing let's face it I'll, you know I'll talk about the elephant in the room an awful lot of these private facilities are managed by former conservative either politicians or or conservative donors or whatever the case might be yep. and you have to ask yourself is this government afraid to bring the hammer down on, on the offenders because you know there's an election coming up in six months and they'd like cash donations so true that's exactly where we're coming from and why this isn't coming to light is beyond me they're they're pretty good at getting away with it and it's uh it's costing people their health and their dignity and their independence in long-term care. And I'd be remiss if I, if I left this interview at any point in time and didn't mention as well that the problem is not only in the long-term care environment, it is also in the community environment. Before the pandemic hit, hit us, we were um, so sorely missing funds in the community environment, as you, as you know, a lot of it because of nonprofit. Mm-hmm. But because long-term care has always been in the foreground, that's where all the funding is going. So, you know, we're, 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 we're doing things ass backwards, quite honestly, right? We're, we're punting people outside of hospitals and saying, you know what, you know, you're, you're done here. We have limited space. Pandemic aside, we have limited space. You need to go back home and get better there. But there aren't people in the community to help to give them care. That's where we need money as well. Uh, that's another shortcoming, though, and we've talked about that for I don't know how many years right now, that home care has to be part of this whole thing. I mean, they, yeah. they talk about overcrowding in hospitals. They say that there are some people in hospitals that shouldn't be there. They should be in other facilities or should be at home. Well, for God's sake, supply the staffing for that to happen, and they haven't done that yet because as soon as you fix that problem, you alleviate the problem at the other facility. You don't need that many beds for people in, in, in a primary care hospital if you've got a, a decent long-term care system, if you've got decent home care but we don't that's that's part of the equation here and they don't seem to want to accept that yeah and if you have the answer as to why please let me know because <laughs> I, I personally do not understand it the more advocacy work the, the you know the more frustrated i get i guess i came into this with a pretty naive thing thinking you know what that what people say is what they're going to do and my eyes over the last decade in particular have really been opened that you can't trust and uh, you know money uh, talks for sure but uh, it has to be put in the right buckets, and it has to be thought through strategically. You can't just throw it at it, make an announcement, and make it look like you're doing good. Because, you know, I have people that will um, call me or contact me after an announcement comes out and say, oh, my gosh, Laura, that's, like, really great, in particular when it came to the uh, regulation of PSWs. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's not. When you read the fine lines, you know, and all of that kind of information, then you realize that it really is a shit show. 
here's the thing, though, and with every one of those announcements, and I, I, I really try to, I want to believe that there's nobody that is mean-spirited in this government that says, I don't really give a damn about old people. I don't think that's the case at all. Right. But as you say, money talks, and there's an awful lot of pressure to, hey, don't do this, do this instead. Hey, don't step on my toes, because I gave you a big check during the last campaign. If you want another one, uh, you know what you have to do. That That's a reality in politics. And I fully accept the also the, the reality that this is not just a, a for government problem. A lot of these problems, as you've talked about over the years, Laurie, started long before Doug Ford got mm-hmm. elected. They've been yeah. going on for you, but but they're in power now. Whatever happened in the past, yes, the, the, you know, damn all of them for for what they did. You know, pox on all their houses. But it's up to this <laughs> government to fix it. It's this. Your job is to fix it, instead of simply saying, "Well, it's been like this for twenty years." Fix it. Do right. it. And right. it's going to cost money. And if, if if you if you don't want to spend that money, then you know have the backbone to stand up and say so. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to fix this because it costs too much. Right? And nobody wants to admit that. But you know, they're speaking with their their actions or lack of actions instead of with their words. They are, and it unfortunately is at the cost of people's health, and that's just not acceptable. Well their families their loved ones and in some cases some of them are going to end up in these facilities uh and you know i I can still remember you know when elected officials all of a sudden get you know a a a full frontal of what's going on in these facilities because they themselves or somebody that they care about is in one of those facilities then you start to hear the yelling and screaming what are we going to do to fix this Uh, i I don't want to wait till then i mean i want to look after the people that are in those facilities this morning uh, and and forth and going forward on this and 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 that's that's the commitment that we have to get from this government. I completely agree with you. I'm doing the best that I can, and you know, <laughs> allowing I know you are right. And allowing um, me to come and speak to this is is certainly helpful. I will continue to write other uh, um, editorial pieces. I have been seconded by Opsu. Uh, to actually work for them specifically as a PSW researcher and ed- advocate. So I'm really enjoying that work, and that's uh, allowing me to really get my fingers and my nose into a lot of things um, to understand things, in particular with Bill 283, and to understand how this oversight authority is going to be developed. It's not a partisan issue. Uh, it does not fall along political lines. This is a, this is a humanitarian issue uh, yeah. that has to be developed for both staff and for the residents of these facilities. Uh, Laura, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, thank you so much for reaching out to us. And uh, you know we're going to continue to do what we can do at this end. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Laura Bomo, who is the chair of the Canadian Association of Continuing Care Providers. Uh, and we're going to keep harping on this, too. And I know that with the election coming up next June, uh, this is, is going to be one of the issues. It better be one of the issues. And uh, we're going to look for some substantive uh, recommendations and actions uh, from this government moving forward on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, discussion, the debate, the, uh, well, back and forth about what's going on with urban boundary expansion, especially here in the Hamilton area, is starting to reach a fever pitch right now. I know that our friend Steve Pakin on the agenda with Steve Pakin on TVO last night had a panel discussion uh, with some of the principals involved in that. And I guess what's stirring the pot even more now is a survey that was released by uh, the Nanos Group. Uh, uh, Nick Nanos, of course, and his uh, group, of course, have been uh, doing polls, polling for many, many years here in Canada. Uh, and they're acutely accurate, by the way, and usually the, the way that they, they get results. Uh, but this poll was funded by the local realtors and home builders associations, heard from 700 residents, and 38% of whom said they favor urban boundary expansion into uh, some farmland areas, uh, as indicated by the city staff report, too. But Mountain Councillor John Paul Danko points out that that's in contrast to the 90% of respondents to the city's own survey, which drew 18,000 responses. Here's the councillor. 
this level of engagement, I have to say again, is, is completely unprecedented. It is a massive level of public engagement. And when you have more than 90% saying no to an urban boundary expansion, that is as close to unanimous opinion as you can get. Uh, I got a concern about that, and, and we'll get to the numbers in just a couple of seconds here. You know, and this is one of the things I get very frustrated about when you get into a very contentious issue like this, a very polarizing issue, uh, is that the, the, the tact seems to be, well, you know, if that's a survey that, that doesn't reflect what I want, then the, guy, the guys that did it are a bunch of, you know, self-serving, blah, 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 fill in the blanks here. Uh, one of those people that uh, has I've been under a lot of criticism is uh, Michael Collins-Williams. Michael is the uh, chief executive officer of the West End Home Builders Association, one of the groups, by the way, uh, that commissioned the study by Nanos. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us the latest on what's going on. Michael, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on a beautiful day in Hamilton. It is a gorgeous day. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts about should we or shouldn't we. I think you and I have talked about that uh, in great length. But uh, my concern here are the numbers. Uh, and I'm not a math guy, but, I mean, I'm looking at what's going on here. And this is according to the staff report. And I know you know these inf these numbers. Uh, the staff report to city councilors indicated they actually sent out 215,822 surveys distributed to Hamilton households. By the way, I never got one. Uh, and, but they also acknowledged that some residents may have just mistaken the survey as a flyer and throw them out. So 215,000, uh, they got 18,000 responses, uh, which is about 7% of, not of the population, but 7% of the things that were sent out. Only 7% responded. And accordingly, yeah, 90% of that 7% uh, said that they were against urban expansion. But that hardly seems like a unanimous decision. And I, I, I would question, uh, whatever side you're on, but, but, but the way those numbers start to come out right now, that low percentage, uh, I, I don't necessarily know that that speaks for the majority of Hamiltonians. I don't know that, 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 that this is as representative as they would like it to be. The city survey was interesting in, in how it was put out, and there were certainly some uh, flaws with it. I, I think staff at the city did the best they could in a, a short period of time. Um, but you mentioned that 18,000 surveys were returned out of the 215,000. I think it's worth breaking that number down further that only 8,233 were actually returned by mail. The city received a further 10,000 or so emails uh, that were generated from a particular website, from a particular group that has a particular perspective. Um, so, you know, it, it is local democracy in action, uh, but for better or for worse, that city survey was uh, hijacked by um, a well-organized group, and, and I give kudos to them. They certainly were well-organized on social media, but I do not think that is representative of the broader sentiments of the city of Hamilton. And notwithstanding my point on, on the issue here, and I've been involved in this when I was on city council, but, but uh, with another urban boundary expansion that was very contentious at that time too, uh, I, I just, you know, that's it, the kettle calling the pot black. I mean, both sides here have been organized. Both sides have been trying to rally support for this. I get that. But for, you know, one individual to say, well, that survey is to be dismissed because they have a vested interest. Well, so do the people that were organizing the other webpage too. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that cancels each other out. And city councilors, and this is something I've been very upset about for the longest time. If you're going to lean on numbers like this, I mean, make up your own mind. I mean, that's what these guys got elected for. That's what they get, they're getting paid for. Make up your own mind based on the facts. And, and sometimes you have to take the sentiment out of this. Uh, the, the, the one I was involved in, i got to tell you, years ago when I was on city council, it had to do with a, a proposed expansion of the boundary, a small one, like this one's being proposed, out around East Stony Creek, around the Winona area, or Jones Road and beyond. 
And I was surprised. We had a meeting at the, what was then City Council, Stony Creek City Hall. And, and it was loud and it was raucous, just like I'm sure meetings are, that you've attended have been, Michael. But what I found interesting was it was a, a most a split. Half of the residents there said, no, we don't want this. The other half wanted it. They were in favor of it. They said, hey, look, this is our land. Uh, this is our retirement. We want to see the development out here because it's good for the city. And it's also, you know, this is what I bought this tract of land for in the first place, hoping that someday, you know, we could sell this off. And people have mixed views on this and mixed ideas. I'm not sure all those voices are being heard in this debate. That's why we commissioned uh, Nick Nanos, who is the top pollster in Canada, to uh, do a scientific survey uh, and poll across the city of Hamilton uh, about a month ago to uh, to see what a, a, a randomized survey would yield. Uh, there's a difference between the city survey where people self-select whether they're going to respond or not based on what they receive in the mail, uh, and typically people are going to respond because they're particularly passionate about the issue uh, versus a random survey in which uh, a pollster uh, gives you a call and uh, asks a series of questions to sort of get a, a broader sentiment um, of what the residents of the city of Hamilton think, not about just the boundary issue, but a, a few other issues related to housing. And one of the questions we asked was whether those residents that uh, received the call from uh, Nick Banos research even recalled receiving a survey from the city of Hamilton. And, and Bill, you mentioned that you don't recall uh, having received one in mail. Well, eight in 10 residents in Hamilton, 80% said they do not recall receiving an official survey from the city of Hamilton in the mail uh, on the topic of how the city would grow. And what's further interesting about that is if you break down the numbers further, renters whom are uh, the people most in need of um, uh, more housing options, 90% of them said they don't recall receiving the survey. And younger people in the uh, demographic from the ages of 18 to 34, 88% do not recall receiving the city's survey. Uh, so we certainly have some concerns as to um, how widely uh, the city's survey really represents the sentiments of uh, residents in the city of Hamilton. Well, I'm an Ancaster resident, and I, like I say, I didn't get one. I don't know that any of my neighbors had. It certainly hasn't been a topic of discussion. Well, listen, we're just about out of time. I just wanted to get you on because I think we need to add some clarity here. Uh, because I, as, as an observer here, there's a lot of spin going on, and, and I think that only clouds the issue. I got one final question for you, though. This has been kicked down the road again for another couple of weeks. Uh, is, is that concerning to you? Ultimately, the city of Hamilton is going to have to make a decision as to how they are going to grow by 236,000 additional people uh, over the coming decades. And I think there is a concern that if the city of Hamilton does not make a, a decision, that they may lose control and the province may step in. And uh, the Nick Nano survey uh, found a much more, uh, I would call, balanced result from Hamiltonians, uh, where 38% supported a boundary expansion. 32% did not support a boundary expansion. And interestingly enough, we asked a third question uh, around whether people just don't want growth. So that means no boundary expansion and no intensification. And uh, 32, sorry, 22% of Hamiltonians um, don't really like either option, uh, which is a, a, difficult, um, a difficult scenario when the city's projected to grow by that much. And I would just say that Hamilton is not an island onto itself. We are part of the fastest growing region in North America. 
Mike, we're going to leave it there for now. And just a, a final exclamation point to this, because I know some of the people that are involved in this debate are saying, look, at, you know, the province has no business in there. Yeah, they do. Uh, we exist at the behest of the province. That's what the, the City of Hamilton Act is all about. Uh, and uh, just ask the City of Toronto about that, because they took the province to court about the, uh, the smaller city council, and they lost. Uh, the province does have that authority. I don't think we want to go down that road. Anyway, more to come on this, Michael. Thanks so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. Michael Collins-Williams, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association, uh, one of the organizations that uh, commissioned the NANO study. Uh, we're going to do a lot more about this. Uh, there's more time in this. We want to talk to some counselors and get some ideas on this and some other people in the community, too. But there's another issue that came up yesterday that, uh, well, blindsided some city counselors and an awful lot of us, too. And it had to do with an announcement by Electro Utilities decision to stop issuing water bills. Now, if you work and live in the city of Hamilton, pay taxes in the city of Hamilton, you notice that your water bill actually comes from Electro Utilities. And that was a decision that uh, an agreement that was made between the city and Electro many, many years ago. And uh, a lot of councillors are very upset about this decision. I want to bring Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson into the discussion uh, about the decision, first of all, and the ramifications of it. Uh, Lloyd, uh, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's been a while. Did you see this coming? No, not at all. No, I, as you know, I chair the Finance Meeting Committee, and it came to agenda review, and I both fell off my chair when I heard it. It's... Uh, you know, for, for years we have uh, electric come in every year. We'll back it up. Hamilton Hydro used to come in once a year with an inner report, and they came with a suggestion they should merge with St. Catharines to be more efficient, increase our dividends, and they did. Remember that, yeah. And they did. And then, um, you know, they, they uh, didn't call it Hamilton. They, they called it something different. And then um, they went and merged with Guelph and, and a number of Mississauga and a number of other municipalities. But they still kept coming back to us, and, and uh, they, they convinced us that by giving up our majority share, we're going to have significantly improved dividends, and we did. And, and so it's, we've had a good relationship until right now, and then they, they dropped this bomb on us, and uh, it went before the um, Audit Committee on Thursday, the Finance Committee on Thursday, and the Council uh, yesterday. And so um, we were also very surprised that our mayor, who sits on that board... And well, I wanted to ask you about that, because I, I saw your comments and, and Councillor Clark and a few others saying you were blindsided, you didn't see this coming. Hamilton has a representative on that board, and it's the mayor. It is, and, and, and uh, I think it's three other municipalities, so a total of four. The mayor sit on the board, the electoral board. And we were told that the mayors all declared um, a pecuniary interest and, and uh, didn't vote. And I was surprised at that because I don't know how our mayor, who's supposed to represent uh, city council, and, and, and at the end of the day, the uh, city Hamilton people, recused himself because how is he having a pecuniary gain? I, I don't understand this. Now, maybe the taxes will have to go up a little bit, but the... the um, Conflict of interest allows for that. When it's general, uh, when Lloyd, it's, I, I don't buy that as an excuse. That, if that were the case, then you and anybody else on council wouldn't be allowed to vote on budgets every year because it impacts your property taxes too. Well, that's that's a right. hollow excuse. I, I, you're absolutely right. I just, you know, don't, the, don't the pecuniary the interest here is the mayor. Our listeners should know the mayor gets about forty-one thousand dollars extra for sitting on that board. Uh, that's a salary that he's paid. Uh, it's not a stipend. Forty-one thousand dollars is a substantial amount of money. Uh, and we were told this decision was made months ago, and you guys just found out about it a couple of days ago. I would think it's the mayor's responsibility as the representative on council to inform his council about a decision that's going to have a significant impact like this. I agree with you, but the mayor wasn't at council yesterday. He was up at a meeting of... Uh, um, yeah, he in Ottawa. In Ottawa, yeah. yeah. And so we couldn't ask him, but uh, the council's now asked the chair of the board, Electra, 
to come before us in delegation and answer a question. Because, as I said yesterday at council, it's like somebody dropped an anvil on our toe. And uh, so it hurts. And we, we, we try to get the critical mass. We try to have efficiencies. And what we did here was one bill would get married, mailed to every home, which would include your hydro bill and your water bill. Separate it out. But you save the postage to a couple hundred thousand homes every month. And, and that can add up to a lot of money. Um, you know, some quick arithmetic, it's probably, and I'm guessing at this, about $100,000 a month to, to just for postage alone. And, uh, and so somebody's got some explaining to do. Now, our staff have already reached out to the other municipalities that got the same message that Electra will no longer do their, um, their water bills. And we may be able to form a consortium of these municipalities to, uh, you know, come up with a new system that will lower the cost or spread the cost out over more areas than just Hamilton. So, Lloyd, who reads the meters now? Electra. So, as a matter of fact, just as I'm talking to you, I'm looking out my window here in Ancaster, and the guy's doing it next door. Uh, so, and that was part of the cost saving, wasn't it? In other words, the city didn't have to send people to read the meters anymore because they got the, their argument was, and back then it was Horizon Utilities. They simply said, "Look, at our people are going out there. Why don't we do the water meters too and save you guys some money?" Well, apparently now you're going to have to pay that money because you're going to have to hire these people now. Yeah, unless we can get the water meters, and maybe some already are, to electronically automatically send it in. But uh, these, this is a lot of things we have to think about. We weren't expecting this, so we weren't prepared for it. Now, they're giving us until 2024 uh, to find another way to get the billing done, so we have some time. But I think it's uh, we, we simply need to convince Electra that they made a mistake, and uh, or, or at least explain to us why you're doing this, because you've been telling us every year when you come in for council about what's the great things you're doing for us. And quite frankly, they have. They just, this is a big letdown. Well, I, I don't know what their rationale here is, that they can't afford to do this anymore. They just said they're going to stop doing this. I mean, this is, as you mentioned, it includes Markham, Vaughan, Guelph, uh, and other municipalities. Uh, it's one of the largest, actual utilities in North America. It's the largest uh, in Ontario. Yeah, and one of the largest in North America. Uh, so don't tell me that these guys are in an austerity program right now. I, I think the mayor and I think the chairman of the board have some some explaining to do here. Yeah, it's it's very similar to Hydro One. They get this this big organization, and you remember Hydro One fired up hydro rates so sadly, badly, and then the the new government of the day had to fire the whole board. And and, and right now our hydro rates have significantly improved. At least mine has. And, and so I hope the same thing's not happening here, where they get this big board, they give themselves big salaries, and, and then they, they access stuff that may be a little inconvenient to them, but put their, uh, their owners, the municipalities, at risk. Well, uh, we look forward to the uh, answers, I guess, that you're going to get from the mayor and from the chairman of the board in the days ahead. Lloyd, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Okay. Thanks. Have a nice day. Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson uh, talking about the uh, the news uh, about uh, the water billing. And uh, there could be a significant cost, as he and other councillors mentioned yesterday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.